Good morning. Good morning. Okay, purple. Welcome to uh, Harrisonburg, everyone. To Madison Union. Used to be called Taylor, right? Taylor. Just out of curiosity, who uh, raise your hand if you graduated from JMU? Any uh, Blue Ridge Community Collegers in here? Hey! Uh, Bridgewater? Hey! Eastern Mennonite? Oh, okay. Western, actually. Western? Oh, sorry. Western Mennonite? Mennonite? Central. Central. Uh... The Book of Acts. We will be in the Book of Acts. Wow. This is part three of our introduction to the Book of Ephesians, which is looking at the church in Ephesus. Come on. Uh, and so we will be looking at the church in Ephesus. So far, we've looked at two different stories about this church. One that they were actually founded by people that were not in the full-time ministry, just trade people. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who worked uh, as tent makers, they shared their faith with someone named Apollos. And that began the church in Ephesus. And then we see the church begins. It gets growing. Paul actually spends a lot of time there. He spends three <laughs> years in Ephesus preaching the gospel at a university. Actually, it was at a, a lecture hall of a guy named Tyrannus or Tyrannus, probably Tyrannus. I don't know. Uh, but he's, uh, he's, there, uh, he's there preaching the gospel. And as we know... Uh, with following the gospel, there is nothing probably as inevitable as opposition. And in Acts chapter 19, we'll pick up and see the last story we'll look at about the church in Ephesus <laughs> before we begin our series this year on the fullness of Christ. Come on. I better get there myself. Let's go. Acts 19, verse 23. <laughs> at that time, this is the NET, so it might be a little different translation. Just follow with me. At that time, a great disturbance took place concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought a great deal of business to the craftsmen. He gathered these together, along with the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know that our prosperity comes from this business. And you see and hear that this Paul has persuaded and turned away a large crowd, not only in Ephesus, but also practically in the entire province of Asia, by saying that gods made by hands are not gods at all. There is danger not only in this, that this business of ours will come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as nothing, and she whom all the province of Asia and the world will worship, uh, and the world worship will suffer the loss of her greatness. 1928. When they heard this, they became enraged and began to shout, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with the uproar, and the crowd rushed into the theater together, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, the Macedonians, who were with Paul as his traveling companions. But when Paul wanted to enter the public assembly, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the provincial authorities, who were his friends, sent a message to him, urging him not to venture into the theater. So then, uh, so then some were shouting one thing, some another. The assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they were there. Yikes. 
Any, any good riot, right? <laughs> what are we doing? I don't know. Uh, some of the crowd concluded that it was about Alexander and the Jews. Poor Jews, right? They're always sort of blamed right there. They must have concluded it was about Alexander and the Jews and pushed him to the front. Alexander gestured with his hands, wanting to make a defense before the public assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! For about two hours, after the city secretary quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what person is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the keeper of the temple of the great Artemis and her image that fell from heaven. So because these facts are indisputable, you must keep quiet and do not do anything reckless. For you have brought these men here who are neither temple robbers nor blasphemers of our goddess. If then Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against someone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another there. If you want to if you want anything in addition, it will have to be settled in a legal assembly, for we are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause we can give to explain this disorderly gathering. After he had said all this, he dismissed the assembly. After the disturbance had ended, Paul sent for his disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell. So a riot in Ephesus. Next slide, please, Sam. The title of my lesson is, Most of Them Didn't Know Why They Were There. <laughs> Which I think is uh, an interesting title. It's quite long, sorry for those who suffer from carpal tunnel. But most of them did not know why they were there. The title of my, my lesson. It's an interesting story and a fascinating story. In a lot of ways, both stories before this have been building to this one. Uh, and so the gospel has been preached... And if you look at the book of Acts as a whole, everywhere Paul goes to preach the gospel, he, he finds opposition. In Thessalonica, he finds it in about two weeks. But in, in Ephesus, he doesn't find it right away. It takes years. So things are going well. And if you even know, if you noticed, uh, when the crowds are chanting, right, and there's this riot, uh, actually it's the, 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 the city officials, some of the upper class, who are friends with Paul. Yeah. They don't go in. So Paul's not just... It's not just a class thing. Paul has actually been able to preach the gospel right. to the upper class, the lower class, all different types of ethnicities, races. Nice. The gospel has reached all different types of people. But this type of riot doesn't happen out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. It happens in a city where there's already a lot of sure. tension. Yeah. Because it's, it, just to have a spark like this set off this riot, means there's already tension in this city. There's already, uh, we can tell racial tension, uh, we can tell social tension, and class tension. Sound familiar? Yeah. There's a lot of tension in the city, and yes. when this happens, riot. Now, there's an amphitheater in Ephesus. You can go there to this day. My, my wife and I and Mark and Marie were just there. We stood in, uh, in, in, the, in the amphitheater. It seats about 25,000 people. How much does the, the, uh, the football stadium here hold? About 50? More? I'm looking at Thomas and, and people that might know. <laughs> about, about 20? So, so, we, so we have our very own... We have our very own Ephesian amphitheater here at JMU, really. Okay. But imagine that place, and you probably don't have to even imagine if you've been to a football game. But filled with people, 25,000 people chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So why are they so offended? And I wanted to talk this morning about why, what ruffled Demetrius's feathers? What shaped his biscuits? That's not a saying. But it could be. What? It is now. I just have to delete it from the recording. What got Demetrius so up in arms? And uh, next, yeah, next slide. 
There are seven wonders in the ancient world. A lot of us learn that. The temple to Artemis is one of them. And so in the city of uh, Ephesus, you have one of the wonders of the ancient world, which is the temple to Artemis. Now, this image that fell from the sky, you're like, what is that? Well, what happened was there was a meteorite that had fallen. And a lot of people there thought, well, this is actually from the gods, from Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of fertility. Um, And so this was their temple. And this temple kind of, it pervaded uh, every aspect of life. This, this was where the bank was. Uh, this was, this was the, the religion. This is where you went to, if you were sick, to go sacrifice to Artemis to be able to be healed. Everything kind of ran through Artemis. So what made, what about the gospel made Demetrius so angry? And there's layers at first, right? He's like, everyone, come here. He gets his guild together. He says, everyone, come here. We're losing money. So at first it's like, okay. They get hit in the pocketbook. It's kind of the first place maybe that causes some alarm, right? Is we're losing money and why? Well, this guy Paul, he's preaching that these gods that we make for a living are no gods at all. And then it kind of, you can almost sense the room getting angry. Like, he's saying that Artemis isn't even a god. And you can tell that now it's not about money anymore. Artemis is Ephesus. Artemis, that's us. That's our city. We are Ephesians. And as it gets deeper and deeper and deeper, it's, it's not just... It's that it's about money. It's that the gospel has done what the gospel always does eventually, which is get to the heart of the matter, mm. and it attacks all other gods in your life. Mm. And for them, their god was quite literally Artemis. Right. Now, Artemis obviously affected their money, just like our gods do. You can have a god of success. That god of, you have an idol of success. You worship, you need success. Of course, money comes along with that. You can have an idol of control. I had an idol of control, an idol of power. You can only be happy. And I, an idol is anything that, if removed from your life, would cause sorrow or despair. So take this away. Now, sorrow is different from despair, right? You could take something away and be sorrowful, but an idol is something that is taken away and it causes despair. I can't go on living. I can't be happy without this. That is what the gospel gets to here in Ephesus, is these men, it's, 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 it's a showdown. It's the God of the Christians versus Artemis. Yahweh versus Artemis, winner take all, you know, grudge match here. And, and when it gets to be uh, an attack on our idols, that's when, that's when we get angry. That's when we get defensive. That's when things become an uproar. Well, come on, Drew. He's anticipating me. We can go back, actually. Shattering my mind. You get this, we're getting close. Almost there. But now you know that 40% is something. Um, That's surreal. It's, yeah, it's it's a messaging. Um, but I began to think, why is this passage in the Bible? Why give it to us? Luke only has so much parchment when he's writing Acts. He's got to really pick his spots, and he chooses to put this—not just pick this, but talk about it quite a bit. What is it about this? And I think it was something that was powerful. Is that if you notice, no Christian really says anything in the story. No Christian actually really does anything. Paul wants to. He's like, let me go talk to 25,000 angry people. And then uh, the other guys are like, this is why we need the church, right? That seems stupid, Paul. Um, let's, let's go ahead and kind of hold you back here. Maybe he was actually like, let me at him, but they, no. Um, I can convince 25,000 people. I'm that good of a speaker. Okay, just relax here for a second, Paul. But he wants to get in there. But no, no Christian actually speaks. But what actually seems to happen is that the, 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 the message of the gospel shines bright. The message of the gospel stands out in a city. And not just the message of the gospel, but the messengers 
of the gospel stand out. If you notice, there's rioting, anger, and then a town clerk who's no Christian. In fact, he's probably the guy who's going to get killed if this thing keeps going. He works for the Romans. Comes in and says, listen, hey, listen. These men have done nothing wrong. You're rioting. There's no cause for this. They're not. They've not done anything wrong. We need to get rid of this. So the, the actual the integrity of the disciples is called into question. And I think there's, there's kind of a, a couple things that, that are often said. And one of the things that's said about the, the gospel is that you can uh, disagree with the messenger, but you can't disagree with the message. Yeah. A lot of people will say, well, I don't like God because of the way this church did things. You can sure people are people are flawed. The messenger is is yeah. going to mess up. Yeah. We all are part of that, right? We say something and it's like, I wish you wouldn't have said it so harsh, or I wish yeah. you wouldn't have, I wish you would have this, 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 and this. But here's the thing: don't punish Jesus yeah. for the messenger. Yeah. And so the gospel, you can you can argue with the messenger, you can't argue with the gospel. Yeah. But I want to submit another thought to you for a second. Maybe this I haven't worked worked this out yet. So let me know if you poke holes in it. Because you can argue right with the messenger, but you can't argue with the gospel. It seems that in Ephesus, the opposite actually happened. Mm. Is they were wanting to argue with the gospel. This idea that right. gods are not actually made by human hands. Mm. They were wanting to argue with the gospel, but they couldn't argue with the messengers. Huh. When they actually saw the gospel and, it, and it, it hurt their sensibilities. And we read the gospel today and it does. It clashes with our cultural sensitivities. It clashes with things that we believe. And it should, because the Bible's a relationship. Every relationship, you don't fully agree with the person. You have to work through, right? Yeah, yeah. come on. Every best friend, you don't agree on everything. So yeah, you disagree. So, but here's the thing is that they actually thought, we don't agree with the gospel, but look at these people. They're so above reproach. They have so much integrity. They have done nothing wrong. And I began to think that I think this is probably one of the problems with the church today. Is people... Well, struggle with Christians. A lot of people, they look at Christians, they go, what's the difference? And we all know Gandhi's favorite saying, right? I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians. Um, and this is kind of, I think, the issue with, with yeah. is you, yeah, the gospel sounds nice, but I see the people, and I, what's the real difference? So we can go next slide. According to a Gallup poll, 40% of Americans have had a born-again experience. Yet the transformative aspects of what that means in real life such as marriage and divorce or personal ethics and morality, reveal no discernible difference between Christians and the rest of the population. And so we look at that and we go, what's the real difference? It's kind of like, you know how you get kids and you have two pictures and it's like, what's the difference? You have to yeah. like help your kid find the difference and you're trying to find what's the difference between a Christian and the rest of the population. And I think that one of the, one of the problems is, is that we, we emphasize... Uh, we emphasize conversion. Mm. And we don't emphasize discipleship. Come on, Drew. Uh, one of the questions often asked, and not just by our family churches, but by any, any number of Christian ch- um, churches or denominations, is you're trying to get somebody to kind of come to a, a decision moment. So what do you say? You ask them a question. And you ask, if you were to die tonight, oh, gosh. you know where I'm going. If you were to walk out and get hit by a car, where would you go to heaven? Mm-hmm. Now, that is a question based on a crisis event. Yeah. Right. It draws somebody to a crisis, a crisis decision. Yeah. So when they say, well, I don't know, I might go to hell. Okay, say this prayer, get baptized, you know, uh, do this thing. Now you're saved, now you're good. Now if, it's a, if the gospel is just con- conversion-centered, mm. the rest of your life is just kind of holding your ticket to heaven, right. trying to manage your sin, right? Yeah. 
Oh, I sinned again. You sinned again? Me too. Okay, let's just go back to... And your life doesn't actually change. Yeah. And you get people who have been Christians for 20, 30, 50, 60 years who haven't really transformed. Mm-hmm. They haven't... And I think that there's a part of that that's... That there's two sides of it. And I don't want to get too technical because I do that sometimes and my wife doesn't like it. She slaps me. And, <laughs> but wow. I'm going to... As a metaphorical slap. <laughs> Hopefully our marriage has some discernible difference. I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. Uh, it's up to you guys. But so my parents went through what's called my parents went through a generation called the, the modern modern theology. And modern theology was very much focused on conversion, evangelism, baptize, go get them, convert, convert, convert. Um, it, you can also say me, me, me. Um, and we can hold on. Thank you. Uh, we can. Get, it's kind of like me, me, me. But then when you when you get converted, you're like, now what? And you realize that Satan didn't go home with yeah. his tail between his legs. On, the world's dude. still evil. The world's still fallen. Yeah. The government, every people, every, everyone still needs Jesus. But we just kind of, what do we do? Yeah. Now, the postmoderns, that's me, we didn't help it at all. Mm-hmm. Young people, we, we didn't help it at all either. You can call the modern gospel actually kind of small. Mm. It's about you. Who cares about the world? Mm. Are you going to heaven? Mm. It's kind of the modern gospel. The postmodern gospel is, but what about the poor in Kenya? What about the poor? What about, I gotta help if people need water, people need food, I gotta, this institutional sin in government. And postmoderns, they, they did the opposite thing. They made the gospel too big. Yeah. And they get paralyzed. They can't change the whole world in a night. And the result is that both the moderns and the postmoderns submit to passivity. They just can't, they feel either overwhelmed by a big gospel or they just feel like, I don't know, I think, I think I'm saved, I'm good, but what do I do? And they both are just paralyzed. And I think that what we see in Ephesus is that the people didn't really even have to say anything. It was their life that was able to defend when it, uh, defend the, the, what are, these accusations that had come against them. Yeah. Right? And that's, it. that's a really challenging thing. And it's easy to feel like, well, hold on. I know that I'm not doing well. I know that I'm struggling. I know that I'm... This is not about us being perfect or us yeah. being like... We're, you can still, right, we can still always go to the message. The messenger will always be flawed. Yeah. But I think sometimes we give too much. Give up, give up too much on this idea that we can change. Right? Yeah. That we can actually become new people. Right. And perhaps a better question is not, if you got hit by a truck, would you go to heaven? Perhaps a better question is, if you could live forever, right. what kind of person would you want to become? Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. a question that's a discipleship-focused question. Sure. Not a conversion-focused yeah. question. Then you think, I have the rest of my life to change. I would be a good mom. I want to make sure my kids are yeah. disciplined, but I also want them to know that they're loved. Yeah. I want them to know that this world is not it. Like that, 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 they, that they're that is grace-driven, that God, is, God loves them no matter what and who, how they look and what they do, and that they're always going to be loved. I want to know that blah, 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 right? It changes the whole focus. Yeah. And then it also, what it does is it's not passive, it's active. Mm. And that we actually can then help each other change. Right. Right. Because the world does not need a new definition of Jesus. The world does not need another spin on Jesus. The world doesn't need another definition of the gospel. The world needs a new demonstration of the gospel's power. And people see it and they go and they don't, nobody, we don't trust anymore, right? And if you're part of my generation, of course we don't trust, right? We've seen so many people, so many leaders just manipulate, use different things. So now we don't trust anyone. So then we're just like, I don't trust anyone. And we see the church and we don't trust the church. But I, so we have to start with Jesus. I don't want to get it twisted. Don't start with the church. Start with yeah. Jesus. You cannot argue with the gospel. But after that, I know that we, ha- we have to be able to realize that it's not just about going to heaven. Heaven starts now. Yeah. And the walk with Jesus starts now. People need help now. We need help now. Next slide, please. Come on, Drew. The church in Ephesus was a light. 
They didn't even have to defend themselves. That's got to be pretty cool to have somebody else say, listen, these people have done nothing wrong. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. <laughs> I think that there's something sometimes, it's easier sometimes to tell somebody correct doctrine than it is to show them, hey, do as I do. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. Hey, just follow my example. Right. Um, oh, well, hold on, what makes you so special? Nothing, actually. Yeah. Just following Christ's example. Right. But you do it in everything else when you become a plumber, you apprentice, right? Hey, do as I do. Okay. Yeah. You want to become a plumber? I do. Okay, do as I do. Sweet. Yeah. There's no argument. What makes you the greatest plumber? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it makes sense in every other aspect of life. It makes sense here as well. Next slide, please. We've got to ask the right question. Yeah. Not just conversion-centered, but discipleship-centered. Yeah. The beautiful thing about discipleship is that there will be difficulties in your life. Yeah. You may think, I know the gospel. Then you have kids. I don't know the gospel. <laughs> and you have, I know the gospel. The kids leave the house. I'm an empty nester. I don't know the gospel. I don't, how, do I live, how do I live a life, a faithful life as an empty nester? How do I live a faithful life in a big church? How do I live a faithful life in a small church? Yeah. How do I live a faithful life with my kids going through something? How do I live a faithful life poor? How do I live a faithful life rich? Yeah. This, the, this life of discipleship never ends. Yeah. We're on that path together. And that is a special thing. Next slide, please. we got to stop. I think the world is full of too many Christians and not enough disciples. Amen. You know, a Christian is content to just believe, but a disciple has a desire to be a student. A Christian is as an emphasis on ideas. Right? It happens all over campus. Let's sit down and have a Bible study and talk about our ideas. But a disciple has an emphasis on consistent behavior. A Christian sacrifices harmony for the, of community for, the, for their own self-interest. Well, I'm going to actually hurt the church because I've I, I got to take care of myself. Right? And that's, by the way, very popular in the West. We, yeah. There's no greater God in America than the God of individualism. Yes. He or she is, is top, number one by far. Community more important than the individual for a disciple. Christian, submission to no one except self. Disciple, submission to teacher or authority. Christian, many aspects of their life are made and hidden. And for a disciple, nothing is hidden or off limits to others. This looks intimidating. It sounds scary. Is it even possible? But when we became Christians, I, don't, I sure hope it wasn't just so that we can get our, oh, I'm saved ticket. I think we missed the gospel. Jesus came down and lived a life because he wanted us to have life to the full. Yeah. Right. He wanted to save us from the life we were living We were living at the time and continue to be tempted to live in right now. Right. So it begins now. And it really just begins with one question. Are you willing to be a student? Are you willing to apprentice? Are you willing to get help? And hey, listen, people are going to mess up. People might, might say, well, Drew, I'd love to. You don't know my life situation. I don't. Jesus does. Don't base it on me. Base it on Jesus. Yeah. He was the one who was tempted in every way. We all begin with Jesus. We can be a light in our community. It doesn't matter how many of you, uh, of you are, by the way. How many there are, they people notice. It wasn't a gospel. I grew up eating the gospel every morning. My parents fed it to me. A healthy diet. We family devos, did the whole thing. We did like, if there was a, a rule book of how to raise a kid, I think we were doing quite well, actually. But when I sat down and studied the Bible, uh, it didn't actually affect me necessarily the ideas that were being presented to me. What, it was the model of discipleship from a guy named Nick, An Nick Anderson. The guy who studied the Bible with me picked me up from practice and he would say, let's pray together. Do you know how to pray? And I would say, of course I know how to pray. 
Pray every day. 14. I'm Drew. You know my dad? It's a big deal in church, okay? I know how to pray. He goes, okay, well, let's pray together. I prayed my little robotic prayer. And then Nick poured out his heart to God on a mountainside in inland Los Angeles. And I remember thinking, I don't know how to pray. <laughs> he goes, do you know how to read your Bible? Do you know how to share your faith? Do you know how to... And he would confess these sexually impure, impure thoughts. And I was like, stop telling me about your sexual impure thoughts. It's making me uncomfortable. I don't want to hear them. I'm 14. I don't know. But I remember after a time, I was like, that's, that's different. And that's important. And, I, he, and he needs to share that because it's going gonna, it's gonna to get a root. It's going to get momentum in his heart. And I need to hear that. And I began to see in Nick, in this, in this example... Of, of what it is to be a Christian, I began to have hope. And Nick wasn't perfect, still isn't, right? But I saw hope in an example, and I think it's okay to realize that our transformed lives can inspire others. Yeah. And I think we need that in today's world. We have enough information. A new spin is not going to help anybody. But someone who sees that you love them, you're there for them. Paul's there for three years. These people argued with the gospel, but they knew deep down in their heart that these men had done nothing wrong. And it reminds you probably of how Jesus died. Remember when Jesus <laughs> dies in Mark 15 and the centurion who's there? Centurion, Roman, says the, the Roman saw how Jesus died and he exclaimed, surely this man was the son of God. Mm-hmm. He saw how Jesus died. Wow. He didn't hear Jesus preach. He saw how a man died. And he said, surely this man was the son of God. How how Jesus lived his life and how he died his death was enough to convert somebody. I think for us, we've got to start with our own self. Stop trying to change everybody else. Let's start with ourselves. Let's be transformed in ourselves. Let's ask the question, is there sin, Lord? But not, is it in the church? But is it in me? How can I grow? How can I change? How can I be transformed? And in this way, we can become a light. Next slide, please. We can become a light in the darkness. First step is we've got to admit that we have an Artemis. Admit you have a problem. Yeah. You can admit that step. I encourage you to get with somebody today. Have a Bible study. Go get lunch. And say, I have a problem. I can't give up control. I have an issue. I, I can't give up sex. I have a problem. I'm, I've been lying for years. I have a problem. I can't do anything unless the house is perfectly spotless and I'm in complete control. And I, I can't, unless I have power over people, I feel worthless. I have to have a job that has, gives me authority. All right, it makes me feel like it's like I'm someone. We all have an Artemis. Yeah, come on. Admit we have an Artemis. Next slide, please. And then we can be lights in the darkness. To close out, Jesus said, next slide, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Amen. If we can remember that, and we can begin today not to have a conversion-centered approach or try to figure out if we're going to heaven or hell, that stuff will be taken care of. The goal is that we got to love Jesus with all our heart because we saw that if he was willing to selflessly die for us, and surely we can selflessly live for him. Uh, let's go ahead and close out, close out in a prayer, and we'll have one final song and be dismissed. Yeah. <laughs> Closing out in a prayer is supposed to prevent applause. Oh. <laughs> anyway, well done. All right, let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, God, we are so grateful to be here with you. God, it's grateful to look into a crowd and just see, see people. God, to see people who have gone through a week, God, of, of difficulty. God, and we know we live, God, in, a, in a, an amazing time, in an abundant time. There's so much good in your world, God, but there is also evil, uh, God. And I, I thank you, God, that you've given us each other. But more than anything, God, I'm grateful that you've given us Jesus. Yes. God, and even in a situation where it would have been easy for the Ephesians to feel fear, God, or feel nervous, 
feel like they have to have answers, God. I pray that we can, if we feel fear this morning, if we feel like we have to have answers, if we feel like we're uh, unable, God, to be able to be enough, God, I pray that we, we can set our eyes on your son, God, and that we can look to Jesus, uh, God, and not be motivated to, to work to earn anything, but be motivated to work because we love you so much. God, thank you for the disciples of JMU. God, and all that they've done, God, to, to, to be a light to this campus. God, to be a light to their students. Thanks for the uh, this disciples at UVA, uh, God, who are who traveled here, God, uh, for the testimonies that were shared today, for the vulnerability, God, of Maya and, and Jenna and Amanda. God, thank you, God, so much for their hearts, God. And I know that the next generation, God, needs not just people who know what's right, but people who do right. God, and people who choose to act and not choose to just think certain things. We love you and pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.